Blog Talk Radio. followers, welcome to the Anthropocene era. Humans have taken over nature, and we will determine and be responsible for what happens next on the planet. Will we survive? Will the earth survive us? I began this interview series in the hopes of building an eclectic offering regarding the climate crisis. Up to now, It's been a bunch of old men, sorry guys, and our limited tenure has soured us on a future we will not see, yet feel guilty about because this has all happened on our watch. I freely admit I've had an overall sense of despair and hopelessness about what my grandchildren will have to live through, something entirely different from my own childhood and following life. I named all this Suicide Earth because I honestly believe we are killing ourselves and the natural planet along with us. But a lot of that's going to change with this interview. Already has changed for me, having just read the book, The 100% Solution, by Solomon Goldstein Rose. He's not an old man. He's a millennial, still in his 20s. He's got another 50 years at least to not just reflect on humanity's great sin. And he's not wallowing in guilt He has rolled up his sleeves, looked hard at the situation, and said to himself, Okay, it is what it is, so here's what we're going to do to fix it. Solomon, so glad you're here to talk about the 100% solution. Thank you so much for having me. I should mention that you ran for state representative in Massachusetts on a climate platform and won all at the age of 22. What have you been up to lately? Yeah, well, I I served one term in the legislature. I realized that I wasn't going to get bold climate action passed through being in that role specifically. Uh, And so I decided not to run for election and focus globally. And I wrapped my head around, like, what is the global picture of climate change, climate change solutions in particular? And that project of trying to wrap my head around the comprehensive picture and where I might fit in turned into this book. And so that's what the, the book is, because I hadn't seen anything that, that laid out the solutions in a, a short but comprehensive way. And so I have been trying to help climate activist groups and advise national political organizations and such um, on how to think in this comprehensive mindset, how to make sure that proposals actually add up. Well, you did a lot of research for this book. Were any of the resources hard to find? Yeah, actually, it's very hard to find basic data on greenhouse gas emissions. All of the greenhouse gas emissions numbers are estimates. They're collected country by country, and some countries keep really detailed records of where emissions come from, and some don't keep almost any records, and so you have to have much vaguer estimates. They're also always a few years old, and so I'm working with some numbers from 2010, from 2014, since the book came out, there are updated numbers from 2018, maybe. And so we're 
always a little bit behind in, in catching that up. But I, I had some good luck working with, especially World Resources Institute is, is one of Tanki nonprofit research groups that has collected the best data on, on climate change emissions and solutions. Well, I have to repeat what I said at the top. I've been really down about all this, but you have fashioned a blueprint of real doable stuff, an action plan that, if followed, could indeed at the least stop all this in its tracks by mid-century. Seeing real and possible action steps has made me feel some hope that had been missing, and no one has before suggested that we could get to the point of reversing it, of going back to when things were better. I think you, 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 you said it, eventual return to historic climate patterns. Yeah. I think this is really important because a lot of people who worry about climate change feel paralyzed, feel defeatist, um, that we're doomed. And, of course, things are going to get worse. We're already locked into some amount of global warming and the various impacts. But at any point, if we, if we achieve net negative emissions, things will be less bad than if we don't. Um, and we definitely still have time to do that in time to avoid the, the catastrophic tipping points in time to minimize at least irreversible changes. And I think more and more people are acknowledging that, you know, we need to get not just to net zero emissions, but to net negative emissions, start to draw down the whole book and organization drawdown uh, was maybe the first one to put this idea out there that we need to reduce not just annual emissions, but the levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That's what drives climate change. That's what we need to get back down to, you know, eventually 270 parts per million CO2. That's, that's historical average. That's what humans evolved to live in. And so getting there really is the goal, not just stopping adding more and making it worse and worse. Yeah, 2050 is the linchpin. Seems to be the the key year of the, that that uh, that you have finally made feasible for me. Because up to now, I've always heard 2050. You know, we've got to we've got to do this by 2050. We've got to stop doing this by 2050. And I and and inside I'm screaming 2050. We got to do this by 2030. We've we've got to we've got to do this a lot sooner. Uh, but but with your plan. 2050 is uh, kind of everything is wrapped up by 2050, except for that final part, the sequestration. By 2050, in your plan, we will have done what we need to do to stop the fossil fuel burning, to electrify everything, uh, to 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 stop the emissions. Uh, so so. 2050 is a lot more palatable to me under your plan. <laughs> well, I think that both are true because we, the world has been talking in terms of targets. You know, UN conferences, countries come and they set their target of we're going to reduce emissions X percent by whatever year. And if you think about that mindset on 2050, that's not very helpful because we have a target for 2050 one, we're very likely to fall short of our target, so the targets had better be more ambitious than we think we actually need at a minimum. Um, and, and two, the things that we need to do to actually meet those targets 
even if the end goal is 2050, the action we need is immediate. We need massive investments in deploying clean technologies, scaling up the manufacturing of a lot of different types of clean equipment so that the costs come down, so that they can roll out globally. And that intensive ramp up does need to happen in the next 10 years for the rest of the rollout to have a chance of completing by 2050. So it's not like we need to act by 2050. We need to act right now and achieve a certain amount by 2025, 2030, 2035 um, exactly. uh, to get on a track that adds up by 2050. And I think that's the thing is what are we on a track that adds up all the way by 2050 or around 2050? Exactly. Now, more than once you mentioned moonshot programs and World War II scale mobilizations. So, so this, 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 is, this requires a worldwide effort, and it requires everybody uh, to, to be involved. Uh, uh, your, your, your plan is comprised of five pillars. You call them five yeah. pillars. And the first one is electricity, electricity generation, which essentially means uh, ramping up uh, solar is only going to take, take care of so much. Wind is only going to take care of so much. We need to ramp up all of the electricity. And I was quite surprised, actually, uh, how much stock you put in nuclear, and yeah. how you you and how and how you think we need to really ramp up uh, a nuclear power in order to get off of fossil fuels. Yeah, a lot of people are surprised about that because uh, the the skepticism of nuclear power has been t somehow tied to in, in the environmentalist community and going back to the 70s or so um, and then that you know a lot of those same people became the climate activist community and so um, it comes from this original distrust of any kind of large infrastructure basically small is beautiful nuclear plants are big and clunky uh, but if we trust in climate science, and you know, I'm not a climate scientist, I believe the climate scientists who say we need to get to net negative emissions around 2050 or the world's going to face even more serious problems. Um, we should also trust the science of, and the statistics of whether nuclear is scary. And the fact is that it's the safest form of energy that humans have ever used. Um, more people are killed by coal power every two days than have ever been killed by nuclear in its entire history. Um, and it, it even compares favorably with solar and wind and such. So the, the main thing, though, that I really emphasize it more, not just include it, but emphasize it, is the scale of electricity generation that we need to add. We're on track to add you know, a certain level, increasing amount of renewables in the global energy mix. And a lot of people think we need to accelerate that. We need to go more and have a, a grid, in fact, that is bigger than today's total grid um, and that is 100% clean. And so that will require accelerating a lot. And I did the estimate of, okay, well, most models are not actually assuming that we fully solve climate change. They want to have a grid double today's size uh, and still be burning a lot of fossil fuels and transportation and stuff like that. So if we're going to electrify things and uh, use electricity to power other processes like synthesizing clean fuels and doing sequestration of carbon from the atmosphere, things that we need to get a 100% solution. If we're going to get all the way there, we need much more electricity generation than most people are thinking. My estimate is something like five times. And I've started to see this in a couple other places, but 
five times today's total grid by 2050, and 100% of it has to be clean, whereas right now the vast minority is clean. And so when you look at it that way, you start to realize, oh, okay, we need as much solar as we can possibly deploy, as much wind. Hydro, there's not much more room to scale up, but what we can do, great. Um, and as much nuclear as we can. And, and even things like geothermal, I'm now involved in a, a really exciting project trying to scale up geothermal that doesn't have to be next to a volcano. Um, that could scale. But also even um, fossil fuels with carbon capture. I don't like that as a solution, but I embrace that in some cases, it's not going to be practical to retire a coal plant or a natural gas and methane plant early. Um, it'll be more practical to mandate that they use carbon capture equipment um, so that it's emissions-free and provides that baseload electricity. Well, let's make no mistake that the, your, your, your entire plan is, is, is a huge deal. It's a massive deal. It's, it's, it's a, it's a world-changing deal, and everybody, uh, everybody, there's, there's a great deal of uh, reliance upon government action and government interference yes. and government purchasing. Absolutely. Governments are the entities in the world that have the scale to jumpstart innovation and to drive new industries quickly. Um, you know, the people are, like, investors are creating new companies to do all sorts of cool electric vehicle stuff and uh, even advanced you know, different industrial clean processes. But the, the free market model would get there decades, maybe a century later than we need to. So if you want innovation to happen fast, that's always been when government has been very hands-on with the economy. The Apollo project, the Human Genome Project, things where um, you know, World War II scale up of airplane manufacturing and all different kinds of manufacturing. Um, we can make things happen really quickly at a large scale, but it, it relies on both government leadership in focusing on the right things and investment, having that large pool of money that can pay the upfront costs to jumpstart things that then in the long term will reduce costs and have a huge payback for the economy, um, but you need to pay a, an upfront cost to, to jumpstart that innovation. Well, let's stay. Let's stay with your your pillars. Uh, we, we we talked about electricity generation. We'll get we'll get into the the, the details and the specifics <laughs> as we go. But but in general, uh, electricity generation has to ramp up. We have to we have to get to the and and you even you even mentioned that that it, it looks like we would have to create an entire new electrical grid, an entire thing, in in the next thirty years, brand new from scratch. Yeah, almost all of the clean generation that we have also will, you know, it's only rated to last maybe 30 years. So it will be retired by the time we get to 2050. So the pillar, entire amount we need two. does have to scale up. Yeah, pillar two is electrification. Uh, not only do we need to ramp up electricity generation, but we need to begin in pillar two to electrify everything that we can. Yeah. And that's things like cars people think of, but also home heating, switching to air source heat pumps and um, electric forms of heating buildings. And then other, some industrial processes, other pieces of transportation, um, trucks, you can have batteries. These things are mostly ready to go. The electrification pieces, air source heat pumps, very proven, rolling out, just need to accelerate that a lot. Electric vehicles, still too expensive up front, but if we can scale up the manufacturing, their capital costs will drop and it'll be comparable with 
gas cars, and they're much cheaper to operate, so everyone will want an electric car. Um, that's the simplest pillar, in a way, to deal with. Pillar three, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know. I, I had some reservations about parts of uh, pillar three, synthesized fuels. You, uh, essentially, you're talking about filling the gaps when we can't get things electrified. Yeah, there's some things like airplanes that need long-range airplanes need the density that comes with a liquid fuel. Um, you can't have batteries for long-range airplanes. So maybe eventually the technology gets there, with, not by 2050. Um, and so you need a liquid fuel. It can't be a fossil fuel. So you can take CO2 out of the air and process it into jet fuel using clean electricity to process it and then burn the jet fuel. And it's carbon neutral. You're taking the same amount of CO2 in the air as you emit. Um, but you have to power that with clean electricity. That's one of the reasons that we need even more electricity generation than people think, um, because there will be some gaps of things that can't be electrified that do need synthesized fuel, some industrial processes as well. It's not just planes, but um, cement making, steel making, things like this. And sometimes it's carbon fuels, like artificial jet fuel. Sometimes it's just hydrogen itself made from water. You don't need to do the step of capturing CO2 from the air, but you just need to split water, get hydrogen, and then use that to make steel or to power a fuel cell or something. I was going to say, mentioning hydrogen, that, that uh, since this book came out last year, hydrogen has really uh, taken, seems like, center stage in, in a lot of people's thinking uh, for the future. Yeah, especially in Europe. The, their recovery plan from the COVID recession is largely focused on clean infrastructure, and they have a central role for hydrogen, which is great because essentially hydrogen plays this interlinking role where you can use excess electricity generation capacity when, you know, it's the middle of the afternoon, it's really sunny, people are not home from work yet, there's not a lot of grid demand. Um, uh, you can use that generation to, uh, or it's, it's summer and you have excess to, to wait until winter. Um, you make hydrogen from water, and then you can store the hydrogen in a tank much more easily over long, long term than you can store electricity in batteries. Um, batteries cannot do months of storage economically. Hydrogen maybe could. Um, but also, you don't have to store it and turn it back into electricity. You can turn it into transportation fuel, or you can use it to displace industrial process fuel. And so it interconnects all of these different sectors, and that makes everything more efficient, and that speeds up the de decarbonization of all of these different pieces, which will ultimately be powered by clean electricity. Don't you think that hydrogen will... Excuse me. Don't you think hydrogen will probably be uh, the answer for uh, uh, ocean ship travel, for planes and things like that? So it depends how far you're going. For a very short distance ship or even, you know, very small short distance planes, you can have batteries and you can run electric. There are electric ones. Um, for a medium range, yeah, it will probably be hydrogen, especially for ships, which have a little more flexibility on space and weight. Um, for an airplane, you don't have a lot of volume to work with. And hydrogen just takes up a lot more space for the same amount of energy compared to jet fuel. So taking that hydrogen and combining it with CO2 from the air to make jet fuel is probably going to be necessary for the foreseeable future. Um, you can also make jet fuel from biomass. And that gets into a whole other controversy of how do you guarantee that the biomass is sustainably harvested? There's only so much yes. that you can harvest in the world without causing deforestation and other problems. But there's a small yes. amount that might 
you know, as long as we're not using it for electricity generation or road transportation or something, only dedicating biomass fuels to the things that really need it, that might end up being a solution for jet fuel and stuff like that. Okay, out of the five pillars, we've 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 touched on electricity generation. We've talked about electrification, synthesized fuels. Uh, pillar four, non-energy shifts, which has a lot to do with agriculture, right? Yes, this encompasses a lot of different pieces. The first is actually industrial processes. There are things like cement making that. Aside from burning fossil fuels, there are other chemical processes like turning limestone into cement that off-gas CO2 in the process. And so either capturing that CO2 or having different processes or having different materials like building with sustainably harvested wood, larger and larger buildings can now be built with wood as opposed to steel and cement. Um, there are various solutions for that. But then agriculture is the biggest piece of this. Um, a lot of that is deforestation, so having especially tropical rainforest countries, Brazil, Indonesia, Congo, um, having government policy and enforcement to prevent deforestation. But along with that, you need to have, you know, different economic models for local communities that are deforesting because they need to make a living and they want to grow soybeans on this piece of land that's now rainforest. They need to be able to keep it as rainforest and still make a living somehow. So there are all different economic models there you need to get into, maybe payments by richer countries to the governments regional governments in rainforest areas, um, and then making sure that you can still grow as much food as we need on as much land as we have today or less so that you can prevent deforestation and promote reforestation. Um, and that's a whole range of agricultural technologies to grow more per acre and do it efficiently and sustainably. So there are a lot of different little pieces. Um, and then agriculture also encompasses Cattle methane emissions, cow burps, uh, are actually one of the biggest sources of global emissions. And there's a certain kind of seaweed that you can grow and feed as a little part of cow feed that reduces the, the methane burps dramatically. So that's one interesting technological solution, but that needs to scale up, be adopted around the world by farmers. There's something like a billion cows in the world. And so that's going to be quite a project. There are other things, you know, shifting diets away from beef, um, reducing food waste, and then finally fertilizer emissions. Um, nitrous oxide is a, a different greenhouse gas, way more powerful than CO2 or methane, and uh, comes from applying nitrogen fertilizers to farm fields, which you have to do some of to grow food as densely as we need to to prevent deforestation, but doing it with more precision, advanced technologies that can reduce the amount of fertilizer that you use, um, and using things like cover crops and crop rotation to reduce the amount of fertilizer. So it's a whole slew of different things in this non-energy category, none of which are about burning fossil fuels and direct replacements for that. It's, it's process shift, it's agricultural practice shift. Um, and a lot of these are more distributed than the other solutions, which tend to be central, centralized big infrastructure or things that can be mass manufactured. This is like getting every farmer in the world to do certain things. Um, and so that's I much wonder, harder. I want more government policy, more nonprofit work. I want to reemphasize that 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 it sounds like we're just talking about you know more uh, more problems or things like that. But but your book is an action plan, and and you 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 provide step by step solutions to to what we're talking about. The fifth pillar, which is which is my favorite, sequestration. Absolutely. Which which as you put it, is an eventual return to historic climate patterns. 
Yeah, and there are two pieces of why we need sequestration just means sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it at least semi-permanently in some way. And there are so many different ways you can do it, but you need to do it for two reasons. One is, as I mentioned, fertilizer, for example. We're not going to totally eliminate fertilizer. There will be some nitrous oxide emissions remaining in 2050. You need to make up for that, get to net zero emissions by doing some amount of sequestration. Increasingly, people are recognizing that this is going to be necessary. It's not in any way a substitute for reducing emissions. It needs to happen, by definition, it needs to happen on top of eliminating as many emissions as possible. Um, and so you get to net zero, but then you also need to get into net negative emissions because this is the exciting thing. You can, you can eventually draw down CO2 levels in the atmosphere much faster than, you know, the Earth would take hundreds, thousands of years to get there. We can do it in decades. We can remove gigatons of CO2 every year, the same as we're adding gigatons right now every year, and that's billions of tons. Um, and we can get back to normal levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere in a matter of decades if we do it ambitiously. But even just getting slightly into net negative, we need, again, all of the different options working as, as fast as possible. So there's reforestation, simple solution, grow forests. Hard to quantify exactly how much you're sequestering, but definitely works, definitely is cheap, um, needs government policy to protect land. And then there are other natural or semi-natural solutions. Some farm practices may be um, things related to rocks that absorb CO2 over time, and if you like crush them and spread them out, you can speed up that process. Things in the ocean, maybe growing seaweed forests in the ocean or um, getting blooms of plankton and stuff to, to grab CO2 and then die and fall to the bottom of the ocean where the CO2 would be stored. Um, and then you do need also the technological, there's the pure technological option, which is literally arrays of fans filtering CO2 out of the air, electrically powered, um, uh, or some of them actually are even powered by natural gas that then captures the CO2 from burning that as well. And then you just stick that CO2 underground. And that's doable right now. There are some companies working on it. Um, they, they've done it in practice, but it's really expensive. And so that's another thing that needs to scale up and have some technological improvement to come down in cost so that we can use yeah, that. It's you, probably you, going to be more you, expensive you, than eliminating emissions but you you deal with the you deal with the economics on all of this and and you you point out that that you know it, it solutions must be cheaper we need technolo uh, technology improvements but we need cheaper clean tech to naturally outcompete the polluting tech you said we've got two options we can either make it affordable with government mandates or just make it cheaper and it will it will outcompete uh, the 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 fossil fuels and the polluting tech. Uh, you, you point out that 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 the developing countries of the world account for two thirds of global greenhouse emissions, but but they're they're using them to improve their lives. Fossil fuels are lifting people out of poverty, but you point out all solutions must be viable in the developing countries as well, because those yeah. emissions will continue to increase in coming decades. The entire world must eliminate emissions. Yes. This is something that a lot of people don't realize. Often people in the U.S. think that, you know, it's, it's the U.S., maybe Europe, that are the big polluters. And historically, we have been. The cumulative emissions over time, it's the countries that are now rich. We created emissions in the process of industrializing that has made us rich. And now a bunch of other countries 
are going through that. China has gone through a lot of that and is the world's biggest emitter right now. India is coming along fast, and it's not the very poorest countries in the world. It's the middle-income places like India, where birth rates have already fallen dramatically, but people are still being economically empowered rapidly. People are being lifted out of poverty with new access to energy. You know, people who don't have electricity access, getting electricity access. This is a good thing. It's not about population growth. It's about existing people getting new access to energy. And we want that to accelerate. But it has to accelerate using clean energy, or it will. It, right now it is driving almost all of the increase in emissions in the world. And so making that possible, India doesn't have the option to pay a lot extra for clean options. And it doesn't have nearly as much in the way of these pools of money to make up front investments to, to make things cheaper, to roll up public infrastructure um, compared to the richer countries in the world. And so it really, the burden of action is on the countries with the money to do it up front. Um, and it will be good for them. You know, we'll get benefits from leading the innovation and selling cheap technology around the world. Um, but it's also an obligation to make that upfront investment that we can, that other countries can't, with an eye to not just decarbonizing ourselves, but to making solutions affordable in all countries. And it's not always going to directly outcompete fossil fuels. Sometimes it, it will be cheap enough that it's comparable and then a government is, will be able to mandate it. Uh, but right now, a lot of times it's not even possible to mandate it. It wouldn't be at all practical to pay the amount of extra cost. Now, when you mention innovation, because you've mentioned innovation several times, and you mentioned it several times in your book, basically you're talking about inventing new things, uh, innovation. You, you talk about how innovation-based changes are, are more absolute than something mandated uh, by the government because innovation is, is popular and permanent. Policy can be repealed. I mean, we've seen the U.S. administrations trade back and repeal each other's regulations over a matter of a few years, but innovation cannot be repealed. Um, but innovation does include, it's not necessarily inventing a totally new technology. It's sometimes inventing a new component to improve an existing technology or a new business practice even to, or, or finance model or something to get technologies rolled out faster. Anything that reduces the cost of physical equipment that can help solve climate change is innovation in my mind. And that includes simply scaling new, up the manufacturing. Yeah. You suggest a new quasi-public independent agency funded by Congress to kind of oversee this. Yeah, it's very similar to the proposal that President Biden had during his campaign of an ARPA-C um, modeled on the, the DARPA model of government-driven innovation and focused on the whole range of, of climate-relevant technologies. So uh, it doesn't have to be one agency. It can be distributed across many different entities as long as it gets funded at, at a massive level for the next few years to kickstart that innovation with a focus on making sure we don't just deploy some solar and think that that's good enough. We need to do all of the things, the non-energy emissions, the industrial processes, everything. What are you feeling about the Biden administration by now? Well, I'm excited by the proposals that they're putting out, and I'm deeply anxious about whether and what will turn into actual policy. Uh, I, things have a tendency to get watered down, and we'll see. I'm, I'm just waiting to see what ends up being actually passed with the Senate as it is. But if Biden were to successfully pass the, the most ambitious proposals that he has officially put out, 
it would be really good. It would be the boldest climate action ever, and it would be a long way towards everything that we need. Not everything, but most of the action that could be expected and desired in 2021. Okay, as far as electricity generation, let's get back to that pillar one stuff. Uh, you, you, you point out that, that uh, solar uh, solar is great, but solar isn't going to be able to take care of everything. Uh, solar will, will maybe cover one-third of our needs at most. Uh, kind of interesting, though, yeah, one of the things uh, that, that, you know, obviously had, had been thought out was you talk about storage and how, you know, of course, solar doesn't work at night. Wind doesn't work when the, when the wind isn't blowing. Uh, uh, we need, and that, that's one of the reasons why you, you, you thought we needed nuclear as a, as a stopgap in there because it's running all of the time. But, but I, I found it interesting that uh, you, you talked about how in, in lieu of storage, if, if we were to install long-distance lines, for solar. So, in other words, Western Europe, when the sun is still shining in Western Europe, they could be feeding energy to Eastern Europe, which uh, has gone dark by then. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, some people have very ambitious versions, you know, building a global supergrid. And theoretically, it works, but the sun is always shining somewhere. Um, it would be really expensive. Building that level of transmission is generally very capital intensive, probably going to be more expensive than doing some other solution. So, and, and there are siting issues. You have to convince people to let the, the big power lines go through their land and everything. So yeah, um, probably that's going to be limited. China has done a lot of that. And of course, China has sort of a dictatorship. And so they can, and they have, and their grid is very different than the U.S. grid because they've invested in that re really nationally interconnected super grid um, and so they can rely on a lot of solar you know carpeting mountainsides in western china um and where it's less populated but we'll, i don't we'll talk, see that we'll happening talk, on a massive scale in the u.s yeah we'll talk about china and the potential benefits of a dictatorship in this regard later <laughs> uh but but again solar can can maybe provide a third of what we're going to need for electricity wind maybe can provide a third. You say that hydro is about 10%, and, uh, which then brings us to the nuclear. Uh, you, you want us to mass manufacture designs for nuclear plants, build as many as quickly as possible, uh, because as you say, uh, nu nuclear is actually safe, and, and all this waste that we're so worried about is, is actually negligible. And, and you pointed out the Sunrise Movement has been very careful not to condemn nuclear. Yeah, a lot of the, the current generation of youth activists, some are, are buying into the rhetoric of, oh, nuclear is scary or just big and clunky. Um, but a lot of the more technical people are being careful to at least not necessarily embrace it. In fact, I think maybe since I wrote the book, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has, has said, like, yes, the Green New Deal totally leaves the door open to nuclear. Not necessarily a wholehearted embrace, but people are recognizing that. We need all of the options on the table, even if we're a little uncomfortable with them, as long as they don't produce CO2. We have to figure out what, what technically works. You, you, you mentioned that, that all fossil fuel burning in the future just has to use carbon capture. Uh, yes. 
and 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 on the other hand, you, you uh, ec- again getting down to the economics of things and and making things uh, make sense as far as paying and cost and things like that. You talk about the, the newly newly electrified equipment uh, can't just be uh, the fossil fuels uh, stuff that exists. Uh, it's it's just not feasible to just push it aside. That we have to be we have to wait for it to essentially retire. And and the good news is that that the, that most of the fossil fuel uh, plants and and operations have a have a an end life. Uh, you, you've been very careful to to weigh costs and benefits of all your changes. Yeah, and this is not me trying to do it in the least cost way. This is just saying that people simply aren't going to retire a coal plant that they just built five years ago uh, unless it is actually cheaper to build from scratch a new power plant and operate it than continue to operate your existing coal plant. And that's nowhere close to being true generally across the world's grid. Um, They could maybe get there in some cases, but most of the time people buy new things when their old things stop working. You know, you, you buy a new car when your old car is done. And so there's a, a time frame. We need to have electric cars be definitively the cheapest thing that no one's going to buy anything else at most about 15 years from now, because that gives us 15 years until 2050 for all of the cars in the world to turn over because the average lifetime of a car is about 15 years. So that, that's where I say like we need the action right now to get to that point in the next, depending what it is, like five to 15 years, so that then every replacement opportunity from then until 2050, it'll be the clean option that's chosen. Uh, deforestation, peat bogs, mangrove swamps, uh, these, are, these, are, these are potentials for ecosystem restoration. Uh, you mentioned greenhouses, vertical farming, but all of this again needs government intervention. Yes, we're not going to solve climate change without significant government leadership. But the cool thing is that governments in one part of the world can affect the global picture. The U.S. could single-handedly solve most of the problem by taking that leadership, making the investments, demonstrating the systems and you know, the the reforestation and stuff. Um, and maybe subsidizing things or, or helping pay other governments to be able to afford to adopt things. Um, so a lot of the natural solutions, the non-energy things, do need more hands-on government policies. But it's also really exciting because there are other benefits. You know, communities are going to be more resilient to, I mean, coastal communities, for example, if you restore mangroves, that makes places more resilient to flooding. Um, and it has other ecosystem benefits. And so these these solutions are exciting. They're often tied to indigenous land rights and um, many other issues. But yes, they also, they're not purely economic. They need hands-on government policy and sustained enforcement over time. Okay, I have to use this term because I, I found it so interesting. Uh, it's it, I know it's the proper term, but it, it almost is a euphemism. Enteric fermentation. <laughs> that's that's the term for actually cow farts and belches, which make up five percent. Mostly burps. Okay, 
but makes up 5% of global greenhouse emissions? 5%? Yeah. So we have a lot of cows in the world. We have Holy. more than an eighth as many cows as humans, and they're much bigger, and they're really inefficient in converting food to meat or dairy um, the way cows and sheep and goats and um, ruminants digest food involves bacteria in their stomachs that produce a lot of methane. And that methane is 80 times more powerful than CO2 measured over a short time frame. And of course, what we care about is the short time frame because we're trying to solve in the next 30 years and minimize that peak temperature that we reach before we reduce the temperature again. Methane is very important. It, if you measure it over the shortest time frame that there's standardized measures for, it's a third of global greenhouse gas emissions um, come from methane. Um, CO2 is definitely the majority, but it's, it's, there are methane is a very important gas that people often forget about, and a lot of that is from cows. And so, reducing that, and this is one that's really exciting, that that especially this seaweed solution because it is it's natural, it's an existing seaweed that happens to have this particular chemical that will suppress methane production from cows, and you just need to scale up the production, the the cultivation of the seaweed. And this processing, you freeze dry it and you transport it around the world and mix it into cattle feed. So just mix seaweed into cattle feed, and 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 you say, and in some cases, it reduces this this methane uh, eruption by as much as ninety nine percent. Some studies say that, yeah. yeah. So, uh, consistently, yeah. I think they've gotten at least eighty percent in certain studies. So it's Overall, a particular kind changes. of seaweed. You can't do it just with any seaweed, but. Uh. Overall, though, when you talk about agricultural changes, you're, 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 you, you foresee a worldwide uh, uh, outreach. As a matter of fact, I think you called it a global outreach initiative, somewhat like the Peace Corps, where people need to be tra traveling all around the world and, and cluing in farmers. Yeah, and again, this is something that could be done by one entity. It could be done by a collection of nonprofits. There's always the question of who's going to fund this, but this is just funding staff to go do stuff. It's not funding infrastructure itself, so it's very cheap on the scale of things. Um, there are a lot of practices. One good example is called system of rice intensification, which is for small rice growers. There are a lot of small-scale farmers in Asia who grow rice, and if they are simply empowered with the, uh, the financing to be able to have the flexibility to make the shift, they can grow rice in a way that doesn't require really different equipment or anything. It's just a different method of how they plant rice, how they time flooding the fields and everything. And it has more yield, so their profits go up, and it reduces the methane from rice, because rice is the next biggest agricultural source of methane after cows, much smaller but significant. Um, and getting that adopted, which has started to be adopted by a lot of farmers, but just it should be all small-scale rice farmers. That's the kind of thing that if you had people who knew the local culture and language and practices and how that farming economy worked and who were connected to this larger infrastructure of people doing outreach um, to go talk with farmers and have the, the financing in many cases to make it easy for farmers to make the switch without feeling risk of switching their practice, um, that could make a big impact. Looking, looking down the, the road quite a ways for, toward the uh, sequestration and, and, well, actually the, 
not the sequestration as much as just the the use of hydrogen, getting more hydrogen uh, cheaper. You talk about the capital costs of electrolysis equipment, and I was thinking uh, that with with your nuclear, uh, that could play a huge role in that, couldn't it? Because you talk about how how you know solar and wind. Uh, they're off and on, depending upon the conditions. Nuclear can't be turned off. It just runs all of the time, regardless of the demand. Uh, you could almost earmark, couldn't you, uh, 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 those, those, those off-demand times uh, for when the nuclear is running to, to use, use it for the electrolysis of hydrogen? Yes, very insightful question. This is one that I, I go back and forth how it's going to be practical to create hydrogen. Some people think that you can make electrolysis capital costs low enough that you could really do it with, with excess solar and wind, this, you know, 2 to 20% of the time when solar and wind would, would uh, otherwise just be curtailed and there's excess. You can do it with that. Uh, most people seem to think that that's not likely, that you need more of the time to use the electrolysis equipment. Um, and so nuclear would make sense. Nuclear needs storage almost as much as solar and wind to some extent because the grid demand fluctuates. So nuclear doesn't have the seasonal issue so much, but just hour to hour, it's still beneficial at least, if not necessary, to have storage on the grid and even medium duration storage because you, you ideally do want to operate nuclear steadily and you know the grid doesn't always need as much. At 2 a.m., we don't need as much as at 5 p.m. And so having either storage or using any excess. Yeah, that would be a really efficient global electricity system would be build nuclear to the peak capacity and then anytime you're off the, the grid peak demand, then make the world's transportation fuel, basically. Um, but it, it will be more complicated than that. You can also just pair a nuclear plant or anything similar with dedicated hydrogen production. It's just not even connected to the grid. They're doing this actually in Australia with a combination of solar and wind there are a couple places in the world, and Northwest Australia is one of them, where the solar and wind are so good that you can actually get to, like, 70% capacity factor, the, like, percent of the time that is actually generating at peak um, theoretical generation. And so that's, that's pretty good. You know, nuclear is still 90% or more, but um, for, for solar and wind combined, 70%, that's great, and you can have really cheap electricity there um, dedicated to hydrogen production. And then you ship the hydrogen around the world in the form of ammonia, uh, convert back to hydrogen if you want. So some companies are working on that, um, but you could do that anywhere in the world if you paired it with a nuclear plant and, and feed. Well, you, you mentioned about uh, hydrogen and ammonia. How? Uh, why can't you just? Why? Why couldn't you just ship the hydrogen by itself? Why do we need the ammonia? Ammonia can be turned into a liquid very easily. Hydrogen needs to be either cooled a ton or compressed a ton to be a liquid and Transporting a gas just takes up too much space. And how difficult is it to separate then the the hydrogen from the the ammonia? Good question. It's not very difficult. That's something that technology is improving on. People are starting to demonstrate. There's various partnerships. Japan, because it is an island and and has a lot of population and doesn't have a lot of domestic resource for energy, is talking about importing the hydrogen from Australia or such um, in the form of ammonia and then turning it back into hydrogen in many cases. You can do it. It's, you know, a little less efficient. So you need really cheap electricity to begin with, um, the cheapest that ever exists in the world to make that economical. But you can do that. You can also burn ammonia directly 
um, use it in fuel cells or burn it in engines, which are being designed. And for something like ships, um, global cargo may generally be powered by ammonia. You don't even have to turn it back into hydrogen. You can just use the ammonia as the fuel. And, and it doesn't a little create more... greenhouse it doesn't no. make greenhouse gas, um, gases. Ammonia is just nitrogen and hydrogen. So you have to okay. you have to design the engines carefully so you don't produce nitrogen pollution. Um, but it's at, at the least no worse than burning fossil fuels in terms of nitrogen pollution and no greenhouse gas pollution. Okay. Well, let's get to pillar five: sequestration, which is which is really the, the I think it's been least talked about by people. Uh, Negative emissions is the end goal uh, of all of this. Uh, and some of the things that you talk about, uh, let's see, there's direct air capture. And we've, mm-hmm. we've seen pictures of those where people are just, you know, sucking the air through and, and getting the carbon out. The direct ocean capture maybe makes more sense since the ocean has so much more uh, in yeah, it. Yeah, CO2 is way more concentrated in the ocean than in the air. But then you, yeah. there's less certainty about how much CO2 will then mix into the ocean. So that one's a little ambiguous. And, and then make plastics with sequestered CO2 instead of making plastics mm-hmm. out of oil. Yeah, and there are a range of things that you could make. If you have CO2, you can make basically any carbon product. It could be, I talked about jet fuel earlier, but you could make other fuels. You could make plastics, and then the plastics are permanent objects that store that carbon for a really long time, if not forever. Um, you, can, you can also grow plants and use the, preferably waste biomass, sustainable harvested biomass, as a way of capturing CO2 from the air and then turn that not into a fuel, but into a solid product that can be a form of sequestration. You, you, you talked about how we could use lime uh, in the oceans that would, that would help uh, iron in the ocean, some of the fertilization, afforestation. But, but uh, why couldn't we be introducing lime in coral reef areas right now? We could. Um, anything that you do in the ocean, you want to approach carefully because they're complex ecosystems and we don't want to mess them up. Especially coral reefs are crucial, produce all, you know, a lot of the oxygen that we breathe and um, are in danger from climate change. A lot from the heat. There's ocean acidification. There's also heat waves. Um, and so trying to protect coral reefs locally from the, just the hottest weeks of the year can also help a lot. Um, but I think that we will start to see experiments at careful scale of modifying certain ocean ecosystems or trying to create ocean ecosystems where there's really, you know, swaths of ocean with basically nothing in it and making sure you do it in a way that doesn't mess up other things, Um, but growing, you know, kelp forests and having the fish populations that can then be supported there and all of that biological activity that will draw CO2 from the atmosphere um, and maybe produce food from the fish or fuels from the kelp or um, be a form of sequestration. You, you point out that the sequestration pillar, the fifth pillar, uh, demands government funding. You'd like to see a national carbon capture agency. Yeah, it's it's one category that there there are some forms like reforestation. 
you might do that anyway because forests are beautiful. You can sustainably log them if you do it right and build buildings with the wood. They, they can attract tourism. So there are other benefits and some of these things, but something like direct air capture where you have a machine that takes you out of the air and puts it in the ground, there is no co-benefit to that. The only benefit is avoiding climate change. And so there's no business model to doing that unless government is going to pay you to do it. So that, that's a case uh -huh. where we really do need some kind of there, – there are large companies now. Um, Stripe is the best of them that are actually paying for direct air capture and other forms of carbon sequestration. Um, and they have a really good – Stripe especially has a good approach of, of being an early customer to just buy at whatever the current cost is, a very small amount of tons of CO2 captured from a range of different companies to help them scale up, just to have the money to, to get that initial, you know, demonstration plant or first commercial plant built. And then, you know, the cost will come down and, and many companies will be able to do this. So I think that we're starting to see a shift in large companies that want to look good and therefore are trying to offset their emissions. A lot of them are doing it through offsets that aren't really meaningful and shouldn't really count. Uh, but some of them are genuinely trying to support this new carbon capture industry and so there, there will be some pockets of money willing to pay for it, but at the scale that we need of billions of tons of CO2 per year, a lot of it's going to have to be paid directly by government. You mentioned so many companies are greenwashing. Yes. Explain that. Well, it's become it's, – it's a good sign in a way. It means – that climate change has risen on people's mind. It's now towards the top of the political agenda and a lot of consumers are thinking about it. And so looking like you're climate friendly in some way is good business now. So that's a positive sign. But unfortunately, a lot of companies are trying to look climate friendly without actually being climate friendly. And that's called greenwashing. And sometimes it's, you know, really obviously they just like have some branding that's like, oh, this is so green and and it's, there's nothing there, and you know that they know that there's nothing. Sometimes they really might think that they are buying offsets for their emissions such that they can count themselves as net zero emissions, and they just haven't thought through the nuances of this, how to solve climate change, we need their direct emissions to go away and for the sequestration activities that they're paying for as offsets to also happen in addition. So you can't pay for them as offsets. The only use of offsets is as an initial market to just get those sequestration technologies and practices scaled up to be viable, eventually offsets need to go away because we have to eliminate all the emissions that are possible. And then, you know, maybe for airplanes or something that are very hard to eliminate emissions, they can have offsets in the future. But um, essentially, we need all of the emissions reductions and all the sequestration. Um, and so having one, paying for one to not do the other doesn't make sense. In the area of sequestration, you helped me a little bit break break through some of my thinking because you talk about geoengineering, and uh, one of the things in geoengineering that they have been talking about is is putting uh, uh, putting things into the atmosphere to uh, stop so much heat and sunlight from getting to the surface, and and I've always just thought that's just a ridiculous notion because you 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 know that that sounds like a that sounds like a forever thing that you can't undo once you've done it but you pointed out that sulfur particles if if sulfur particles are used for this 
they would actually uh, work their way back out of the atmosphere within two years. Yeah, anything that you stick up there doesn't tend to remain floating there forever. And so it's, it does need to be approached with caution. It's like the ocean things we were talking about. Anything on that scale that can affect global weather patterns, you need to do some real thorough science. And I think most people who talk about geoengineering in any form right now are basically just saying, we should talk about this more. We should have more science, more studies funded to see if this would be a good idea or to see what the risks might be. Because people are scared that, you know, this could affect global weather patterns. And that's fair. We need sure. to make sure that that's not the case. Um, but the benefits as a temporary thing could be enormous because it's very cheap to do something like the sulfur particles. And if you do the science and determine that it will have minimal to no drawbacks, then minimizing, again, it's about shaving that peak temperature that we reach because the, the hottest that the, the average temperature ever gets, that's what's going to drive the level of irreversible changes we see, the, the potential for tipping points, the potential for you know, the, that sort of next order of magnitude of catastrophic changes. So if, whether that's 1.5 degrees C or 2 degrees or just over 2 degrees, like keeping that as low as possible, whenever that happens, whether it's 20 years from now or 60 years from now, if you can shave that peak with something like geoengineering for a few decades, and then once you're on track, once you're you know, below the temperature that you started it out, you can be phasing that out. Um, and, and you actually do want to phase in and out slowly because sudden changes in temperature are, are even worse for ecosystems than the, what temperature is. But that could be a solution to yeah, make life more bearable this century while we are on track to eliminate emissions, which will then get us back to normal climate patterns for next century. Of course, you you would need you you need world agreement for for that that kind of thing. But do you do you think we could get world agreement on uh, on doing something something like that, concentrating on the Arctic, which really needs it? Yeah, I, I think it's possible for the Arctic. It's interesting because there are very few countries that actually uh, have a direct stake in the Arctic, and there are groups of indigenous people that you would need on board but there are not all that many groups. And so the, the number of entities that actually have to buy in for, for local cooling in the Arctic is maybe 20 or 30. And so maybe, maybe you could get agreement, but you, you do need to have the scientific studies to make sure that local cooling in the Arctic is not going to then affect global weather patterns. And um, so I would fully support researching that, maybe doing it once you've tested some things. All right. You, you, you say that the world, uh, to, to do any of this, of course, the world needs serious, bold leadership, moonshot-type efforts, and the U.S. president is the key. But uh, if the U.S. president doesn't come through, there is one other possibility, and you mentioned China. Yes. It, and China is the world's biggest emitter of greenhouse gases right now. Uh, but it is also one of the countries that has invested the most in solar manufacturing. China scaled up solar manufacturing and made it cheap. They're mostly responsible for solar being as cheap as it is today. Um, they are starting to do similarly with hydrogen. They're rolling out nuclear. They're rolling out wind, everything. And they're still building coal plants. So there's, there's a mixed commitment. Um, the Chinese federal government, I think, wants to decarbonize themselves, wants to build clean infrastructure around the world, and that's part of their 
geopolitical strategy to dominate the world economically. Uh, we have mixed feelings about that, but they also are working with the local and regional governments who might want to preserve the coal plant that they see as providing jobs for their community. And so it's not an absolute dictatorship in, in the sense that the federal government can just control everything. But it is an interesting case that they, if Xi Jinping just decided to solve climate change and thought about it strategically and um, with a level of benevolence that I'm skeptical of, he could sort of solve the problem. Um, in the U.S., it would need a lot more entities to get on board. Uh, it can't just be President Biden. It has to be a lot of people in Congress and activist groups and everything. But similarly, if you could get that commitment, then the U.S. could sort of solve most of the problem. We should send your book to Xi. As a matter of fact, we should send your book to all the world's leaders. <laughs> yeah, if you know his address, go for it. <laughs> Solomon, before we go, there's one thing I must ask on behalf of my generation. Those of us who are aware feel a tremendous sense of guilt about what has happened to the environment, essentially, on our watch. We believe that we will be harshly judged by history, and rightfully so. Do you and your compatriots in the Sunrise Movement feel this way about us, too? I think that... It most youth climate activists feel positively about anyone who's trying to solve climate change seriously. Um, and there are so many people of all ages, you know, it is youth voices that are bringing climate change to the top of the agenda right now, but there are still plenty of young people who are not engaged either. Uh, and there are more old people who are not engaged and, and uh, wary of action. And that's too bad. But I think that, more attention, more activism by anyone who wants bold action on climate change in a practical way is a good thing. All right. Well, thanks again for your book and taking time here to talk about it. I won't, I won't be here in 2050, but I hope to God you make it all happen. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you, sir. Solomon Goldstein Rose, a 20-something millennial who offers a step-by-step -step way for us to stop our planetary decision and even go back in time if we stick with his ideas, the 100% solution, a plan for solving climate change. It's the most favorable look into the future I've seen. We all need to get on board. Right now, it's the only plan out there. Can we do it? Will we do it? It's not what we should do anymore. It's what we must do. In the meantime, Suicide Earth continues to beckon to us, and it's really sad because we're not just killing us. <laughs>